You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hello. Oh, good afternoon. One more game. One more game. One more game. I don't know if you've been uh, under a rock somewhere or or I, I uh, underground or whatever, but I, I assume you know that this is the Raptors town now, and oh, Raptors the rest of us just get to live in it. I, I was going to ask you what one more game of what <laughs> tiddlywinks. That's where Alan Carter is today at a uh, Tiddlywinks uh, tournament. It's a big championships for him. And so uh, as as, uh, the rare occasion, I'm here filling in for him. My name is Ed Keenan. I'm glad to be with you through till 1 o'clock. Alan Carter, of course, is is off uh, stress eating over the Raptors is what he's actually doing. And I think he's going to be at the game tonight. And he will be here to uh, fill you in on the hopefully celebratory details tomorrow. But uh, but it, it is uh, it is the last game. It, we this is a team that didn't ha- wasn't given a huge chance earlier in the season. Even after they brought in Kawhi Leonard, there were all kinds of questions throughout the season about whether he's going to come back next year and all of that. That's it's, those questions are still there, but they're kind of on hold because we've got more fun things. After losing the first game, they steamrolled Orlando in the first round. They were never supposed to beat the 76ers with the best starting five in the in the NBA. Uh, but in seven games, after multiple overtimes and comebacks and whatnot, the, there were four bounces, and it went in. Then they lost the first two to Milwaukee, and it was supposed to be, oh, oh it was a good run for them, but it's all over. But they fought back in that one, too. And now against the the generation-defining dynasty of the Golden State Warriors. They were given next to no chance going into this series, and now they're up three games to one, and they have a chance to close it out at home tonight. On the phone to discuss it with me, a very special guest of this program, Alan Carter. How you doing, Alan? I am doing so great. I'm so <laughs> excited, but I'm, I'm still very, very nervous uh, I think, you know, I, I just know that this Golden State Warriors team is not to be taken lightly. And it's not that I'm not confident. It's not that I don't share your confidence. It's that I, I, I realized today that, you know, a lot of people are making the case that only one team has ever come back from 3-1 in the finals. Yeah. But, but one team has come back from 3-1 in the, in the conference finals, in the Western Conference finals. So the Warriors have done that. They've done it. They have come back from 3-1 at brink of elimination. And, I mean, I think this t- our team is so centered, so grounded, so focused. I think we're going to take it tonight. I just can't shake that, that fan's nervousness that I think we all have. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I think if you've been a Toronto sports fan uh, f- f- in, at all, Raptors, uh, Maple Leafs, even the Blue Jays, it's like... E- you're hesitant to pop the champagne until the trophy's already awarded, right? Um, and I think even more so against this Golden State Warriors team that the Raptors have looked dominant uh, at times, especially in the second half of Game 4. But this is still a team, especially if, if Kevin Durant comes back, but even if he doesn't, that that hasn't given up before, that has fought back, that that does improbable things. So, yeah. <laughs> like you, I'm... I'm uh, I'm kind of excited, a little bit confident in how good our team is, but also I, I'm still. I mean, if if Golden State wins tonight, then it's a whole new series. 
Absolutely, because, you know, then they go back to Oracle, and although they took, you know, they took two losses there from us, you know, there's no guarantee that, you know, that home court advantage won't stand up for them next time, and then you're looking at a coin flip on, on a seven. So, you know, I, I, again, like, just like you, I'm confident. The other thing that I'm really going to be interested tonight is Kevin Durant. Steve Kerr is, he's a chess master. And, and Nick Nurse has actually said so much in a press conference where he said, I would not want to play chess against Steve <laughs> Kerr. So Steve Kerr, like, for example, remember Kevon Looney? Remember, remember mm-hmm. how he was out for the series and then oh, all of a sudden he was playing in, in the yeah. last game? Remember that? Well, you know, there's been all of this sort of talk about, well, you know, how well is Durant doing? And there was one point just before uh, game four where they closed off the arena in Oracle. And what they do that is they basically they, they close it off and they make sure that nobody can see what's going on on the floor. And the speculation was that that was Durant out there practicing hard. Mm. So whether or not he's coming back full steam tonight or not, that's going to be so interesting throughout the course of the day. Yeah, I, I have a friend who's a longtime basketball fan and a pretty good handicapper, and he was saying, you know, if if Durant's out, he still think, he thinks the Warriors win it tonight. But if Durant's in, then he'd he'd still put his money on on Golden State in seven, which I wouldn't go that far. But it, it he is even at sixty or seventy percent, he's potentially that big a game changer. He is. I mean, you you ask yourself, who do we have to guard the best isolation player in the league? And the guy that was leading the playoffs and scoring before he was injured. So if he's coming back at that kind of full octane, then, uh, you know, I think we have our hands full because that's been, I mean, that was the trouble in the last couple of uh, finals, or at least the last finals, the last two, pardon me, where there's just no answer for Durant. No, just no answer for Durant when you also have Curry and Thompson being able to drain threes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're, you're going to be at the game tonight, I imagine. Yeah, so I am. Uh, we are beginning our broadcast uh, at 5.30 on Global News from uh, just outside of Jurassic Park. We have crews embedded in the uh, crowd. We have crews in the stadium at Young Dundas as well. Then I'll be at the game to cover the game. And then the, immediately after the game is over, about a minute after the game concludes, Switch to Global News, our YouTube channel. Just search that on YouTube, Global News. And we'll take you outside of the arena to get you the sense of what's really going on in the streets and the crowds. We'll get you the post-game reaction, too, from the floor. But we'll be on to give you a different kind of perspective if you're watching the game tonight. All right, that sounds great. And then I imagine uh, whatever happens, you're back tomorrow to uh, fill in every on the details and the, the hopefully celebratory details. Yeah, you bet. It's going to be a wild night in the city. All right, Alan Carter, uh, our Raptors correspondent. <laughs> thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for bringing us up to speed. Uh, this is the assignment of a lifetime. I'm, I'm having so much fun. <laughs> Let's go, Raptors! One more game. One more game. One uh, one additional thing. I don't know if anybody who's been watching the games has noticed. There's been a little bit of what CNN called anthem showdown. Right? Uh, we've had different singers, different performers for the. American and Canadian anthems at the various games. First in Toronto in Game 2, it was Fantasia versus Alessia Cara. Then, you know, we went to Oakland, and it was Metallica doing the American anthem versus a sort of a slightly countrified version by Tennille Arts. And then in Game 4, it was Neo versus Walk Off the Earth. We have a little bit of audio of Walk Off the Earth doing O'Cannon in Game 4. 
little kind of uh, folksy summer camp, hacky sacking at the beach vibe to that. What you can't see, uh, because this is radio, is that there are four performers there playing a single guitar as they uh, sing. So there was that. Uh, and so then there was a question. I, like I said, I saw this CNN story about this showdown saying, you know, what is, what is Canada... What do the Raptors have in store for us in Game 5? Is it going to be uh, Celine Dion or Justin Bieber or Drake or some uh, unholy trinity of the three of them just blowing it out of the water? Uh, and in fact, they have announced that it's going to be something else. And it may be something familiar. This was after the end of Game 4. That was, of course, in Oakland, in the Golden State Warriors' home, in what could have been potentially the last game ever played there. After the game, a couple thousand Raptors fans who had bought tickets and who were in there celebrating, taking over the arena and celebrating by singing the national anthem. And I guess that vibe was so good that that's who's singing the anthem in Toronto tonight, the fans. They're going without an anthem singer. It's just going to be the crowd singing it. Maybe, maybe the right singer doing the right job might set the mood properly. But I have to say, the times I've been in a stadium full of people, all of them singing it, it kind of gives you chills in a way that even the best singer can't. I was at a Leafs game once, and the mic actually cut out just as the anthem singer was starting the American National Anthem. And the Toronto crowd picked up without hesitating and sang the American National Anthem because there was no other audio. And it was one of those moments I saw later people had posted and it kind of went semi-viral on social media. Even there, it was, it was somebody else's anthem. But it was just like the power of a crowd sort of stepping in to take over and own that. It feels like to start a game, if your fans... And their volume and their enthusiasm is part of your home court advantage. Having them sing the anthem, that might be just the thing. I want to take a quick look back at what the Jordan case was about. Barry Jordan was arrested in December of 2008 for allegedly operating a dial-a-dope service where we were selling drugs like cocaine and heroin over the phone. For a bunch of reasons, the court process dragged. There were scheduling issues and court delays, and it took four years to go to trial. Jordan was finally convicted in 2013, five years after his initial arrest. He then appealed the conviction and took it all the way to the Supreme Court. He argued that his right to a timely trial had been violated. And in 2016, the court ruled in his favor. That was the voice of Tamara Kandakar. And she's the host of a new podcast called Wait, There's More. Wait, There's More. But wait, there is more. Before we get on to that, I want to remind you 
that the Alan Carter Show is available as a podcast. So if you like it so much that you want to listen to it again later, uh, you can download it wherever you get your podcasts. So whatever service you use for podcasts, the Alan Carter Show is available as a podcast. But as we heard at the top of the show, there's another great podcast coming to you from Global News. Wait, There's More with host Tamara Kendakar uh, is a podcast that airs five days a week just in time for the commute home. The show focuses on one news story a day from politics to pop culture and unpacks it. The first episode, which we heard there at the top, unpacks a global exclusive by our investigative reporter Andrew Russell digging into why nearly 800 criminal cases have been tossed since 2016. These include all kinds of criminal cases, drug cases, violent and sexual assaults, even murder. She explains R.V. Jordan, and that's what they were discussing uh, at the top as we came back from the break, a Supreme Court decision that means if a case takes too long to wind through the courts, then the charges against the accused can be stayed. Tamara's uh, with us on the phone now to talk about the podcast and about this first episode of it and this really disturbing trend in our criminal justice system. Tamara, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, uh, so this is this is fascinating. Um, yeah. And distur- and disturbing. Um, nearly eight hundred criminal cases have been thrown out over delays. Just just in the last uh, two two some odd years since 2016. That's right. Um, so under the charter, uh, our right to a timely trial um, is something that that we're entitled to. But the court system pre Jordan, which is the Supreme Court decision that came down, was was very clogged. Um, and you know, in certain cases, we were seeing delays of up to. Of, of many years, um, and the in the case that we discuss in the episode, there were two people involved in in the death of an Ottawa man, and those two cases took over a decade to wind their way through the court system. And as a result, one of the men who was convicted of assault ended up having his conviction tossed. Uh, so yeah, that's what we talk about on the first episode of the podcast. Yeah, and I mean Andrew Russell, who the investigative reporter for Global News, who dug into this, sort of created a database to look at the results of different cases since since this decision. Uh, I mean, in his story, he really gets into uh, the details of that case you were just discussing, where, you know, a 22-year-old had his head smashed off a steel surface 10 to 20 times. He was later punched in the head by somebody else. And his family, and they're sort of anguished watching this wind through the court system and then ultimately have, have one of those people just walk free because the case got tossed... The conviction got tossed yeah, because of exactly. delays. Exactly. It's it's kind of just uh, it, it's it's devastating for them because they've just been waiting for you know years for for some kind of justice and um, because of this kind of arbitrary time limit um, and because the case kind of went too long and that's why this person gets to walk free. I understand we have a little bit more audio from your Wait There's More podcast. It's discussing the importance of of this ruling though and this principle for the defense. If there was no reasonable limit on how long a case would take, um, it had the uh, ability to really prejudice a person in in, in their defense. Uh, Sometimes witnesses weren't available by the time their case got to trial. Sometimes they would spend more time in jail than they would have ever served had they just pled guilty uh, or were found guilty of a crime. And so it was encouraging a lot of people to plead guilty in order to get out of jail. That's obviously an important principle. But, I mean, it's it's got to be shocking to 
the average person to see murder cases, sexual assault cases thrown out because of that, right? Yeah. I, and we, it feels like we have to balance this a little bit. Yeah, I, I just want to clarify the the person in the clip was Daniel Brown. He's not attached to the case that we're talking about, but he talked to me a lot about the kinds of delays that we were seeing before this decision and how the legal system has kind of tried to adjust itself to meet these new time limits. What you hear um, when you talk uh, to people on both sides of this issue, you know, victims and victim families, as well as people who have been accused of crimes, is that these delays are really not helping anybody. Like nobody wants these cases to take so long that they're thrown out. Everybody should be and is invested in fixing this problem. According to Andrew Russell's report here, since the ruling in 2016, approximately 3,100 applications have been filed for charges to be stayed. Of those, 789 have been granted and another 788 have been dismissed. This is a, a case where the court system just needs to speed up these trials, right? We don't get these thrown out for delays if we don't have these delays in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So we get into talking a bit about, you know, different solutions that have been proposed. Um, And uh, there's a Senate committee that has actually studied this issue. And they put out a report in 2017 and made a bunch of recommendations, some of which are, you know, taking things like drunk driving cases out of the court system, letting people make court appearances via video instead of having to come in in person every single time, because that's a really time consuming thing. Replacing judges as soon as they retire because we have vacancies across the country. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that can be done. And the government has studied this issue pretty extensively. And are they doing them? Like, it seems like just just as uh, the right to a speedy trial is important, it seems like this should be a pretty high priority, not just to preserve that right, but to preserve the, the very integrity of the justice system. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in progress, it seems. There's, uh, there's some provinces that have taken this really seriously, and they have been acting on it. Uh, I know BC, for example, has taken these impaired driving cases out of, uh, out of the courts. Nova Scotia has introduced a Jordan ticker to kind of keep track of which cases in the system are about to reach this time limit of 18 months or, or 30 months, depending on which court is dealing with it. Um, so, yeah, there are things being done, but uh, it, it seems like we still have a long way, long way to go. All right. So, Tamara, uh, the, the first episode dealing with this case, it's available now at globalnews.ca, and I imagine wherever people get podcasts, they can find it there. You're doing this five days a week. What have you got coming up? It kind of depends on what happens this week. It depends on what happens with the Raptors tonight. If the Raptors win, then we will be something on that tomorrow. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff coming up. All right. Tamara Kendacker is the host of Wait, There's More, a great new podcast from Global News. A really compelling topic for that first episode. So congratulations on that and good luck with the series. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You can find that wherever you find your podcasts. And another reminder that The Alan Carter Show is also available in a handy, portable podcast form. You can get that at the iTunes and the other places where you normally miss your podcasts. we got to get Doug Ford to change the law so we can get podcasts at our corner grocery stores. I'm, I'm looking forward to the tweet storm about that. Would you live in an apartment without an oven? 
If it's too small to fit an oven, would you take it? There's a story in the Toronto Star today about 162 units at 576 Front Street West near Bathurst that has all of its suites, uh, the 162 units, uh, are under 480 square feet total. And so none of those units include a standalone oven. And, you know, they talk to lots of experts about how increasingly the young and urban people who live in condos, you know, uh, don't cook for themselves very much in a microwave and take out food and, and whatnot might be more useful to them. But it, it, there is the detail here that these apartments include a convection microwave, which combines the functions of microwaves and convection ovens. And it was when I read that that I realized I did once live in an apartment that didn't have a full separate oven. It had a convection of, uh, microwave built in under where the, where the counter would be. And uh, the thing about convection microwaves is that they, they, they can function as a convection oven. And we once cooked a turkey in it. It had to be a small turkey to fit in. But we, we cooked a turkey in there. It came out fine. And so, you know, it may not be the dramatic sacrifice that it seems to be. But with increasingly small apartments, some of them under 400 square feet now, becoming increasingly common in Toronto, we see more and more stories like this, where your apartment doesn't have a separate X, Y, or Z. Uh, it doesn't have a full-size anything. Uh, many of the things you have, I mean, the old thing with a little studio apartment is you got like a, your bed folds up into some kind of couch or some kind of futon for when you're entertaining. Uh, you fold it up a day bed of some kind or a Murphy bed that folds right up into the wall. Um, so, you know, it, it, people have to get creative. So to discuss this with us, we've got uh, Gene Grant, a writer for Toronto Life, who did a series on tiny Toronto apartments. Uh, Gene, welcome to the program. Hi, Ed. How are you? I'm really well. I'm, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Um, so, you know, we, we were looking at this story in the Star uh, about, about these apartments that are sort of built without a standalone oven. They've got a microwave in them, like a convection microwave, but essentially... Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that they've sacrificed here, and it looks like built into the countertop, there's like a little one or two burner stove. But we've um, we've seen, yeah, I mean, you've seen and heard of, I imagine, lots of sort of creative, innovative, and or some people would say desperate uh, ways to sort of uh, deal with the lack of space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from interviewing people who've chosen to live in these tiny spaces. Um, it's all kind of about prioritizing what you actually want and what you, what you need in a space. So there's people who, you know, spend time thinking specifically, okay, what do I need to create a livable, beautiful space? And sometimes it's about sacrificing some of the things that you maybe don't use a lot of, like, for example, a full-size oven. If you're living especially by yourself and you're not hosting dinner parties, is that really necessary? And can you use that space to, you know, store something else that you really need? Um, my producer, Rebecca, here showed me a picture of one, uh, really, it looks kind of interesting. I, mm-hmm. it's, there's a pool table in the middle of a tiny little condo, right. and I don't know if I would uh, prioritize a pool table if I only had, you know, 400 or 500 square feet, but it converts into, a like, a dining room table. Yeah, no, I saw that. And I think, like, the thing is, is that even though you're living smaller, you don't have to sacrifice some of the luxuries if you really want a pool table then you can have a pool table, you know? It's not like you're living kind of in this space that doesn't have kind of the luxuries that you might want. Um, You can still have things that you might 
you know, dream of one day, like a pool table. <laughs> and so, so what are the, what are some other examples of, of ways people get creative? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that design does a lot of really great things with these small spaces. Like, like we mentioned there, we profiled the, uh, the smart house condo that, uh, Queen and Sedina and, they're really kind of beautiful. They're, some of the units are only 270 square feet, um, but they've been kind of impeccably designed. So the kitchen is super, super functional, um, but really only has kind of what you need. And it's all kind of sleek and things pull out and, um, and it makes kind of really great use of the space. Other um, people who I've interviewed, um, you know, some of them maybe have uh, like a vintage clothing collection that they don't want to get rid of. So they've sacrificed, you know, they have, have a tiny kitchen and then they've kind of moved their bed on into a loft and then they have like their closet full of all these vintage clothing um, beneath that. Um, or, you know, I've seen people who really love their cats. And so they've kind of prioritized having space for their cats, whereas they sacrifice other things. All right. Jean Grant is a writer for Toronto Life. She did a series on tiny Toronto apartments. Uh, and if you, you want, uh, you know, sort of more examples of how this all works, you can find that online. Thanks for joining us, Jean. Yeah, no problem. You know, it, we think of this as like a brand new thing. But I just, my mom tells a story. I, I didn't know this until like recently. But she was like, when she first moved out of her house, she was already uh, dating my father. Uh, but they, I, I can't remember if they were just getting engaged or whatever. They, they weren't married yet. So she moved, uh, into the city from Oakville, uh, to, to an apartment near where she worked. And as it turned out, my, so she had a little studio apartment there, right? She had a, a, you know, a double bed with her dresser and then a little kitchen space with a kitchen table. And that was the whole apartment. And there was a little curtain that she would draw in between her bedroom and, and her kitchen. Uh, and then my dad's sister, Susan, uh, need, needed to, my dad has eight sisters and they were all sharing one bedroom. So my dad's sister, Susan needed a place to live. Uh, and so my mom said, yeah, that's fine. I'll clear out a drawer in my dresser for you. So they, they shared the bed. They had, they shared the dresser. They, and I said, you know, did anybody think that you guys were, uh, uh, and she was like, no, no, at the time, nobody would ever think of that. But they actually just thought it was completely natural uh, to, like, we're talking about improvisations like using your pool table as a dining room table or, or using a convection microwave. Like, just share a bed. Just share a dresser, you know. Push your underwear and socks over to one half and, and let your roomie take the other half. Uh, and so, I mean, that was back in, the, I guess, the 1960s. Uh, and so, you know... Maybe, maybe uh, cozying up to smaller apartments isn't as revolutionary as we tend to think about it. But but looking at pictures uh, like uh, that accompany, say, Jean Grant's writing in Toronto Life, it looks like it has gotten a bit more style. sort of round up some of the things that are happening in the news today. Uh, the first one, it's a follow-up on June, June 2nd, uh, so about a week ago, uh, Lisa McLeod, a minister in Doug Ford's government, wrote a, an op-ed piece in the Financial Post about how Do- Tommy Douglas knew that runaway debt was immoral and, you know, would approve of the government of Ontario's actions. Tommy Douglas, of course, uh, legendary sort of founder of the NDP, uh, one of the most beloved Canadians in history, uh, CCF, premier of Saskatchewan, uh, the father of 
Medicare uh, in Canada, the, the health OHIP system that we have now, the socialized medicine that we have. So Doug Ford tweeted that out saying, you know, <clears throat> it's time to make government work for the people again, not the other way around. I think Tommy Douglas would approve. It's sort of a quote from Lisa McLeod tweeted that out. And he got some reaction, of course, from NDP types and socialists, as you would expect. Uh, but he also got a reaction, delayed as it was today, from the grandson of Tommy Douglas, who you may recognize as the star of 24, among uh, other uh, designated survivor, among other things, Kiefer Sutherland, the star of stage and screen, I think probably stage at some point, but really the star of screen, screens big and small. Uh, he said today in a tweet, Mr. Ford, <clears throat> your tweet has recently come to my attention and I can only tell you that you are correct. My grandfather, Tommy Douglas, was fiscally responsible. In addition to balancing the budget of Saskatchewan, he also provided the province with paved roads, health care, and electricity. He did it all within four years. Contrary to your argument, it was never at the expense of social and human services to those in need. I personally find your comparison of your policies to his offensive. So I can only ask, as the grandson of this man, for you to stop posting his picture and using his name as part of your political agenda. After all, I knew Tommy Douglas, and you, sir, are no Tommy Douglas. Sincerely, Kiefer Sutherland. P.S. You're very lucky my mom's not active on Twitter. Uh, so, so there you go. Uh, that's a, There is a, a situation where when a politician dies and becomes beloved, Abraham Lincoln in the United States, say, or Thomas Jefferson or whoever, uh, Martin Luther King, not a politician, but an activist who is now so widely cited by everybody supporting every cause. Uh, you, you don't often hear much clap back. That's why like the dead beloved ones are safe because there's nobody there to, to come back and tell you to stop, stop doing that. Uh, but Kiefer Sutherland, <laughs> uh, not just a celebrity, also the grandson of Tommy Douglas, taking exception uh, with the premier's invoking his grandfather's memory. Um, Over in Ottawa, Trudeau officially announced today that he plans to ban single-use plastics, including straws, for example, as early as 2021. We have uh, some audio of him announcing that. I'm very happy to announce that as early as 2021, Canada will ban harmful single-use plastics from coast to coast to coast. In case you were wondering the location of the ban, it covers all three coasts and presumably uh, our border with the United States as well. Um, The ban would include uh, plastic bags, straws, cutlery, and reportedly, although the details haven't been released and the list of items isn't written in stone yet, according to CBC News, also cotton swabs, drink stirrers, plates and balloon sticks, also maybe fast food containers and cups made of polystyrene, type styrofoam. Uh, But Trudeau did say that they're trying to avoid unintended unintended consequences. Concerns about unintended consequences are exactly why we are taking the time necessary to uh, base our decisions on science as to what and how elements of uh, single-use plastics we're going to be banning. All right. And uh, so, you know, there are lots of questions about how this would affect industry, whether this is the most effective way to stop plastic pollution and all of that. But Andrew Scheer went for the dad joke. This is clearly just a, a government that's clutching at straws trying to change the channel from its scandals. 
he's he's probably right about that. Uh, but you know, it may still be a good idea. We'll see, I guess, as the details emerge. Uh, and finally, I wanted to move on to a provincial press conference uh, that I think is worth uh, celebrating. Lisa McLeod, who we mentioned, Keith Sutherland was kind of clapping back at earlier, uh, was there today helping to announce a new public awareness campaign that will debut tonight uh, during uh, the Raptors game. It's a it's a new commercial about uh, invisible injuries, concussions. It's uh, easy to come off the ice when you have a sore ankle or you've broken your arm. It's much more difficult to get off the ice, the field, the pitch, whatever, if you have a head injury because it's invisible. The ad campaign features uh, the death of Rowan Stringer, a rugby player who had multiple concussions and eventually died as a result of that. Uh, And apparently it it hits a little close to home. Rowan's dad, Gordon Stringer, uh, you know, talked about how evocative the ad is. For us, it's hard to watch, but that's exactly what it needed to be. It's impactful. It makes a very clear statement as to what you need to be aware of. As a father of a daughter who has suffered a concussion and a a coach of young children's sports, I think uh, we really need to boost this awareness and get people uh, to know about it because it's not just, I mean, in some cases people can die, but also we're talking about long-term brain health. And so I'll be watching that commercial tonight, but I hope everybody uh, gains more awareness as a result of it. And of course... Like almost everybody else in this city, I'll see that commercial because I'll be watching tonight, cheering for the Raptors. Alan Carter's got you covered tonight on YouTube, as he said, and he'll be back tomorrow to walk you through all of the details.